Father, in your providence, you have brought these people here today to hear this word from you. Lord, we ask, as you have done so many times before, to open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. Father, remind us of the great work that you have done in our hearts by your spirit and of the grace that you continue to pour into our hearts in Christ. May you preach a better sermon than the one that I will preach today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, growing up in the 90s, there was always something that found its way onto my Christmas and birthday wish list. How many of you remember Power Wheels? They were these kid-sized, battery-powered cars that kids would drive around the neighborhood and into lawns, and, and they had this really catchy, uh, you know, commercial jingle, Power Wheels, Power Wheels, and they're just loving life, and I just remember being so jealous of those kids in the commercials, you know, cruising around in their, you know, their mini Corvettes, and they're talking on their fake car phones, I'm like, oh, I want that. And I, I vividly remember going over a friend's house uh, at a young age and being so excited when he, you know, walked into his garage and oh, there it was, a Power Wheel Jeep. And I was just gushing at the prospect of driving this thing. Yet to my surprise, my, my friend did not match my enthusiasm. When, when I expressed my desire to, to drive this thing around, he seemed pretty nonchalant about it, pretty blasé about it, over this very, very expensive Power Wheel Jeep. The joy that he must have had when he first received it had faded away. I'm sure many parents can connect with what I'm talking about. You give a gift to your your children. They get this priceless look on their face when they open it. But within weeks, maybe days, maybe even minutes, the, the joy has faded and they're looking for something new. Well, church, I fear for many of us that that is often our own attitude towards the gospel. That we may have had a lot of joy, a lot of excitement when we first believed, but over the years, our story of redemption has become so familiar that we've almost maybe become bored with it. Maybe you've been in church for a long time and you've heard the gospel preached, yet you've become so familiar with it being talked about that it becomes like white noise in the background of your heart. Then you find it harder and harder to see its relevance maybe to your life. I think this happens to a lot of us uh, uh, with many familiar passages with Scripture. You know, for instance, the passage that we are studying today, I bet you many of you have memorized maybe Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, maybe since you were a kid. And, and I would venture to guess that when you read these verses now, they're so familiar that the awe and the wonder that you, when you first read them may have faded a bit. And you've forgotten how glorious they really are. I fear that the truths that were so pivotal in our conversion start to slowly become like my friend's power wheel Jeep, just kind of gathering dust in the garage of our hearts. I wonder if we become so accustomed to being citizens of heaven that we've forgotten that we were once kingdoms or citizens of another kingdom. The tragedy of gospel familiarity is that it can often make us numb to the depth of our sin. It can blind us to the goodness of God. And it can cause us to live in such a way where grace is a given and not a gift. So today, as we look at this very gospel-rich text, I want us to refresh ourselves in the glory of our redemption. And I want us to remind us as a church that we ought never to graduate from the gospel. 
that we, that we never grow weary of hearing or singing or sharing or delighting in the glory of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, we will look at three truths found in this text that we cannot forget. One, our sin is worse than we realize. Number two, God's love and mercy is greater than we can imagine. And lastly, Christ's amazing grace will surely bring us home. And as we investigate these truths, my prayer is today that someone maybe even here today may come to believe these truths for the very first time. So first, our sin is worse than we realize. In order for us not to drift towards apathy, towards the gospel, we first need to remember who we were before we met Jesus and remember how much sin had characterized our identity. Look at verses one to three with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In these verses, I see Paul give us three clear descriptions of the helplessness of our condition before Christ came into our lives. The first way Paul describes our life before Christ is a life characterized by death. You see that in verse 1. He says, and you were dead. He does not tell us that we were lost in need of some direction, or that we were naive in need of some just education, or that we were suppressed in need of some self-expression, but instead he tells us that we were dead. Now, what does Paul mean by, by dead? He means that while we are physically alive, we were spiritually dead, meaning that in our own strength, we are absolutely incapable of responding to God's call. Those who are spiritually dead cannot positively respond to the call of God. Maybe you're here in the, the medical community, or maybe you've seen one of the thousand uh, medical dramas on TV that when the, dime, the time of death is called, what do they do? They stop administering CPR, right? They stop giving the patient any more medication. They're not trying to resuscitate. Well, why? Well, because the dead do not respond. Their efforts would be meaningless. When people die, the struggle for life is over. And so too it is with our spiritual state of our hearts before Christ, not sick and dying, but dead and unresponsive. And Paul further makes this, this case for the state of our hearts before Christ in Romans 8, 6 and 8. He tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh is death, and it is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we are not just spiritually sick and needed just the right medicine. No, we were dead on arrival with no hope of picking ourselves up off of our gurney. And it goes on. It kind of even gets even worse. Secondly, Paul tells us that in our former way of life that we were like slaves following the course of this world, the devil in our flesh, and we were unable to escape their chains. We have to be really careful to understand that in our spiritual deadness before Christ, it doesn't mean that we are inactive in our response to God's call, but rather we were active participants of another call, the call of the world, the call of our flesh, the call of the devil. You can just see back at these actions of our deadness in verses 1 to 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So it's not as if we long to, to walk towards God, but we were unable to, but, but rather Paul tells us that we voluntarily walked in our sin. We didn't long for God We long for things contrary to God. We freely submitted to the will of the prince and power of the air, and we were hostile towards God. Now, it certainly didn't maybe feel like we were taking orders from the devil before Christ, but but rather, our slavery is evident to sin when we maybe organized our lives around the pursuit of wealth or the pursuit of comfort when our minds were so fixated on people's approval that we couldn't sleep unless we received that affirmation, when we did what we felt we wanted to do without any thought of whether it pleased God or not, what we thought no one was telling us what to do, we show by our actions that we were slaves to our various passions and unable to resist their call. If you're unconvinced of the spiritual slavery that happens out apart from Christ, again, you you can look at your own life, but also just even look at the world, and you can see how many people are enslaved even to their sexual desires, unwilling but ultimately unable to resist them. Paul goes on further. He tells us another descriptor of our deadness. He says, Paul finally tells us that we're dead in sin, we're enslaved to the world, flesh and the devil, but he also tells us what we are by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. When uh, my wife, Jessica, and I were dating, uh, she often volunteered at a women's hospital hospital uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and one of her jobs in this hospital was to be a cuddler. And what a cuddler did is she had to hold the babies and sue the babies that were in the newborn ICU. I remember her telling me, though, that she would have to also sometimes try to soothe babies whose mothers had been addicted to drugs. She told me that these babies, as they're developing in the womb, their mothers had continued their drug addiction and passed their addiction onto their babies. So when their babies were born, they did not scream or cry for food or because they were scared, but rather they screamed for the drugs that their mother also craved. Jessica would tell me that these babies had a different type of, of cry, No matter how long you held them, no matter how much pure milk you fed them, they would not be comforted. And church, so too it is with us. Our first father, Adam, he went after the desires of his flesh and he passed down his cravings throughout all generations. No son of Adam or daughter of Eve is exempt. And because God is holy, which we sung about this morning, we are under now, a righteous judgment from God because of our sin. Yet this is right. This is not how the world teaches us about human nature. Many will, will teach, hey, that we're born with a blank slate and we are just the sum of our surroundings. Or that at the core, we have just some untapped goodness that just needs to be mined out. Or that all of our natural desires are inherently good. But that's not what the scriptures teach us or what parents experience as raising kids that their kids our hearts kids uh, they're bent towards self and not towards god and just listen to some of these passages that describe the nature that we inherit from our parents see this david says this in psalm 51 5 behold i was brought forth in, in iniquity 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, I mean Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, his one trespass led to the condemnation of all men. The natural state of our heart is to desire the things of the world, to desire our own pleasure and not the things of God, and sin it plays no favorites. G.C. Ryle in his book on holiness tells us this. He says, sin is a vast moral disease which affects the whole human race of every rank and class and name and nation and people and tongue. It is not a result of bad parenting, bad company, or bad examples. It is a family disease that we inherit from our parents. Now, this does not mean that Paul is saying here that we act as badly as we possibly can all the time. No, we know that God in his, his mercy and his common grace restrains our depravity, but it does mean that we are all equally without hope of salvation within ourselves. We are not born spiritually alive and then become dead. We are not born free and then become enslaved, but rather by nature we are condemned under the righteous wrath of Almighty God. And church, the reason I take so much time this morning uh, to talk about that and to understand the depth of the pervasiveness of our sin is because a failure to rightly diagnose our utter helplessness before Christ will lead us to treat the symptoms of sin rather than the heart of sin. It will lead us to believe that there is an easy or a natural remedy for our spiritual condition, and we will settle for solutions that will not acquit us on the day of judgment. For example, the way that I've seen see myself do this or our own hearts do this is we will look, right, not to God for to approve our lives, but we will look to others in the world to approve what we do. We will trust our hearts rather than trusting God's word. We will take pride in the labels of nice, moral, good people given to us by our friends and our neighbors, and we will be content to live with secret sins at peace with the world and not realizing that our eternal destiny is the same as theirs. And ultimately, we will ignore the problem of death and live like most Americans, comfortably agnostic towards their eternal destiny. So with that big problem, what do we do? What is the solution to our condemned state? How can our nature be changed? How can we be set free from the passions of our flesh? How can we who are spiritually dead be made alive? Well, we see that hope in verse 4. But God. But God. It's been said that these two words contain the whole of the gospel in them. Christian, you were not saved from your deadness because you grew up in a good family or because you deduced through some supreme intellect that Christianity was the best way to go, but rather it was God who interrupted your passionate pursuit of evil and took you from the kingdom of darkness, and he transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. The only thing more powerful than our sinful nature and its cravings is the sovereign power of God to save. In order to be saved from our deadness, we needed a God who could raise the dead. 
In order to be set free from our bondage, we needed a God who could break our chains. In order to escape the wrath of God, we needed a God who was willing and able to provide a perfect substitute. A God whose love and mercy is greater than we can ever imagine. And we get to read about that God in verses 4 to 7. Look there with me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Over the dark backdrop of our depravity, God's glorious character breaks onto this canvas of human history and makes known to us the glory of his abundant mercy, his great love, the immeasurable riches of his grace towards undeserving sinners like you and me. And I love how Paul describes God's character. He doesn't just say, you know, he's got some mercy. No, he says he's rich in mercy. He is immeasurable mercy and grace. You think of the most wealthy person you can think of, you know, Bill Gates, you know, got so much money, he doesn't even know how to, how to spend it. But he could, he could spend it all. But God, his bank account never runs dry of mercy. Yet I believe too often we think about God's richness and mercy kind of as we do our own mercy. You know, we're willing to overlook, you know, a spouse, you know, not forgetting to take out the trash, even though they said they would. We're willing to look past a sharp tone after it's been a, a hard day at work. But oh, when a bill doesn't get paid on time and it was their fault, our mercy runs out. Our bank account of mercy can't seem to pay the bills. And a lot of times we think of that as maybe that's God. He maybe run out of mercy for me. No, friend, God is not like us. Our sins, they are many. Our sins, they are ugly. But church, his mercy is more. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've gone back to it, God's mercy is greater and his mercy never runs out. Our omniscient, all-knowing God knows every evil deed you've done, every evil thought that you've had. And he says to you, my mercy is more. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Church, this is the good news of the gospel. You were saved not because God saw something good in you that, that you might be deserving of this mercy, but rather when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were enemies of God, he pours out his great mercy and love because that's who he is. And that's what he loves to do. Our salvation, it flows from the character of God himself. And you must see that our salvation, that our rescue originates not from a call for help from us, but from a God who is rich in mercy, who is overflowing with great love and is abounding in kindness and grace. And this thought, church, right, it ought to overwhelm us. It ought to boggle our minds like, Lord. And, and our response to this ought to be, why, why me? Why, why do I get to be the object of such great mercy? This is actually a question I've been asking myself a lot recently. Uh, many of you may know I've, I was adopted at a young age and I had the privilege of growing up in a, in a Christian home. I was always very thankful for my, my parents and my upbringing and, and happy to remain ignorant of the circumstances surrounding my adoption. 
But last year, a, a good friend of mine for my birthday gave me an Ancestry DNA kit. And so, uh, long story short, it connected me with a half-sibling that I didn't know existed. And as I learned more about my biological family, it truly left me asking the Lord, why, why me? Why did I get the privilege of hearing the gospel my whole life? Why did I get the blessing of growing up in a loving two-parent home that my other half-siblings didn't? It certainly wasn't anything I did. I was just born, and I got placed in this wonderful home. But church, I want you to hear this, that the blessing that I received being adopted and growing up in a loving home does not compare to the adoption that I've received in Christ. This morning, we, we've seen what kind of spiritual family we all were born into, a family with the father of lies at the head. And yet we who believe have been adopted into the household of God, placed in an eternal home with a father who is rich in mercy, he's rich in grace, and he loves giving good gifts to his children. And friends, this ought to drive us to worship and to praise. And we even see this movement to praise in chapter 1 of Ephesians. If you just turn, flip back one chapter in Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6. He says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of, a will, purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We were all born with a corrupt nature into a chaotic, dysfunctional family, yet God, what does he do? He causes us to be born again. And in his great love, he adopts us into his family and gives us all the rights and the privileges of being called a son and daughter of the king of kings. Friends, we ought never, ever to get tired of hearing that story of redemption and the love that God has poured out on us in Christ. But maybe you're thinking, there's a question that remains about this whole wonderful salvation story. How does God actually impart his love towards us? How, how is God just? He's a just God. He's the one that you know, is right in his, all his dealings. How is he just to shower his grace onto people who are undeserving of it? How are we saved, actually saved from the wrath to come? Well, the key here, I hope you didn't miss it in our text, it's Christ. And you'll notice that all of God's actions that he puts towards us are synced or linked with Christ. Look at verse 5 again, chapter 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him in the seat and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God imparts his great love towards us, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but by uniting us to the perfect son of God by faith. And since we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Unable to follow God's commands, we needed someone to fulfill the, the righteous requirement of God's law for us. We needed someone who could resist the devil when we would have given in. Someone who could defeat death because we were already dead. Someone who could satisfy God's wrath on our behalf. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under law 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In order to be saved from the wrath of God, we needed to be united to the perfect Son of God. And church, I really don't want you to miss the significance of what Paul is saying here. He's saying that when God makes us alive with Christ, it means the power that he worked in Christ to defeat death and raise him from the dead, he now works in you. When Christ came out of the grave, you, Christian, came out with him. His resurrection is our resurrection. And spiritually, we have already been raised with Christ. And while not now, one day we also will be raised physically with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't that exciting? That's great. Paul also says here that that we are spiritually seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Meaning that because of Christ, we are seated in victory over the spiritual forces that once controlled us. And we now can say no to sin in the power of Christ's spirit that he now works in us. Sin has no dominion over us because it had no power over Jesus. It it means our position is no longer in Adam, but we are now in Christ. And one day we will finally be with him. Our heavenly bodies will be with us and the war with sin will finally be over. And the victory will be clear for all to see. In Christ, we who are dead are now alive. And church, I hope you never get tired of hearing that. I hope you never get weary of hearing the truths um, of the gospel and what God has done in you in Christ. Early in uh, our marriage, Jessica and I took a trip to China, uh, and so we got to meet some of her extended family while we were there. And one of the most memorable parts of our trip to China was that uh, we got to sit down with a meal after a church service so we, on Easter, uh, Easter morning. Right after the church service, we sat down with some Chinese uh, believers. And it wasn't the food that I remember most, but rather the conversation uh, that we were having. Now, again, they're all speaking in Chinese, so I have no idea what's going on. So I'm leaning over Jessica. I'm like, hey, what are, what, are, what are they saying? What's going on? Well, she says, hey, they're sharing their testimonies. I'm like, interesting. Do, do, do they not know each other? Oh, no, they know each other. They're, they've been friends for a long time. Like, interesting. And I asked, like, so I asked my father-in-law, is, it, is, that, is that normal? It's like, oh, yeah. I mean, all of us have some incredible stories about say, be, being saved, and we just love sharing those together. Church, there's a reason our hearts get excited when we hear someone's testimony, and we see baptisms, and we, we are hearing about a miracle of God that we too have shared in. And according to this text, no one's testimony is any more, less, more or less miraculous than another's. Each one of us is a walking miracle of God. And the beauty of gathering together on the Lord's day is that we get to be reminded that those who are dead are now alive, that God's mercy has not run out for us, that those who were enslaved are now free. Those who were destined for hell are now citizens of heaven. And just my my practical encouragement for you this morning is that we ought to be people who who seek out those stories, that we have to be people that when, we, when you gather with, with God's people, when you maybe take them out to lunch this afternoon or you sit down, how often do you, do you remind yourself and ask those questions like, hey, how did the Lord save you? Tell me what the Lord has done in, in your heart. I mean, we're, we're a young church. I bet you if you look around, I mean, how many salvation stories do you know in this church? Just think about the joy that you can have and to be able to recite and to remember what God has done in us. 
Let's never go tired of praising God for the love and the mercy that he's poured out in Jesus. Church, we've seen that our sin is worse than we realize, that God's love and his mercy is greater than we can imagine, and lastly, Christ's amazing grace will surely lead us home. Look at our last few verses together. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul had mentioned this saving grace briefly in verse 5, but now he circles back to it in verses 8 to 10 to unpack that, the nature of this grace and how we rightly live in this glorious grace. So what's so amazing about this grace? Well, we see first in verse 8 that it is a gift from God. This gift is to, and it was to be received by faith. It's not anything that we have done to deserve it. When I was uh, in college, I was a student manager for the, the Michigan State uh, football team, and part of the perks of the job were I get to use all the facilities, get to use the, the weight room, and yeah, you may be saying he probably should have used that a little more. I'm like, you're probably right. You're probably right. It's too late now. It's too late now. But if you walk through the weight room at Michigan State, there's, I mean, you got these motivational quotes all over the things like, yeah, you can do it, you know, all these cool pictures and trying to you know, pump you up for, for the lift. There's one quote that I, I will never forget. And it hung up there, it said, the best things in life are earned and never given. And this could not be further from the truth. While hard work is a godly trait, and while we must never feel like we're entitled to anything, however, we must remember that the best thing in life, friends, has been given to us in Christ. And it cannot be earned. If we strive to earn God's grace, then we have missed the meaning of grace. And if we miss the meaning of grace, we will miss the glory of Jesus and we will diminish his work on the cross. The only thing in life that we have earned is death because of our sin. But God, through Christ, offers us this free gift of grace to all who believe. And this free gift of grace, it is received through faith. And this saving faith is not simply a, a gut feeling or a blind trust, but it is, this faith is a result of, of encountering God, knowing God and what he has done. And that personal conviction that we are in desperate need of forgiveness and of saving. And that personal trust in Christ is the only way to receive that forgiveness and eternal life. And friend, if you place your faith in in those truths, in this gospel of grace, eternal life is yours today. There are no strings attached. There is no fine print. And Paul makes this clear in verses 8 to 9 that the whole salvation process is not our own doing, not a result of works, so that no one's got grounds to boast, but that we boast only in Christ and Him crucified. Yet for many of you, I'm sure that... Uh, Maybe you, you say, yes, this is my story. Yes, I believe in this grace. Yet I find so, so often, and even myself, that those who have been saved by grace now live and act like we are now being saved by our works. I think we show this, right, when we, we serve, or we do good works just to be noticed and be praised by others. We show this when we, when we read our Bibles and we pray and we expect God to give us a good day. We see this when we compare our righteousness and our sins to others and justify our actions by the world around us instead of a holy God. 
And when we worship and come to worship together, you, you come to church and you just check it off the list that maybe you've made in your hearts. We so badly right, want a participation ribbon from God, don't we? Like, just give me something that I did. Yeah, like, I want to feel good about myself. No, it is, it is all grace. We, we may quickly affirm that we're saved by grace, but we often just live in such a way that shows that we think God's grace isn't enough. And church, when you see this in your own heart, when you see your heart to drift, right, we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We repent of that and say, Lord, help me. Remind me of the grace that it is a gift and to receive that from you. One hymn that always helps me be reminded of this is, nothing in my hands I bring, right, simply to the cross I cling. God's grace is only amazing because it comes from God and his grace not only has the power to raise you from the dead, but the power to keep you in his grace until he calls you home. So then when you realize we know this grace, what then should, should we do with it? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul tells us that God's grace not only saves us from something, but it saves us to something. God's grace saves us for good works. We are still, again, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but true faith in Christ is never alone. Christ has promised that the amazing grace we receive by faith will bear fruit in our lives, and those who are saved by God's grace, they will be changed. God's grace is, is not a, gives us a license to be lazy or apathetic, but rather his grace spurs us out to live out the purposes God has crafted us to fulfill. This idea of being his workmanship, we are trophies of his grace that he has uniquely fashioned each and every one of you to fulfill a work that he has asked you to fulfill. And is our joy. If you've been at a job, you're like, this is what I was meant to do. Like, this is good. You know, you get in a bad job, you're like, man, this is not what I love doing. But when you, you actually do what you love doing, like, there's a joy that comes. There's something that God has created each one of you for. And when you fulfill that good work, it, it, it is going to bring, it won't be a job. It won't feel like a job. It'll be one that you get to rejoice in and enjoy. And he, he doesn't fashion us as this trophy of grace just to be kind of put on his mantle and to, to gather dust. No, he calls us to go and fill the earth with his glory and grace as a trophy for, this, for all to see. And we see that uh, in Jesus' words in Matthew 5. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we Christians, we are the city on a hill individual, unique recipients of his grace. We are his workmanship to displaying who he is and everything he has done for us. And when we truly understand the gospel of grace and what he has saved us from, we will delight in God's commands. It won't feel like work. It won't feel like a burden. We will enjoy striving to walk in love towards one another, not as a repayment for God's grace, but because we delight in it. We will delight, in per, uh, when we understand this grace, we will delight in putting others' needs before our own. We will be quick to forgive. We will be quick to repent. And even in hard circumstances, we will see that all of life is grace. When you put on these glasses, these, these glasses of grace, and you, re, you remind yourself of this truth, again, the hard days don't seem as hard. And the great days, you can even give even more glory to the Lord because you know everything that you receive 
his grace. I wonder if there's anybody here this morning that has not experienced this grace. And I just want to remind you again that that grace, it's a gift. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to God. You don't have to get your household in order before you are ready to, he's ready to hear your plea. No, he says, come, just cast your burdens on Jesus. And he has promised you that he has carried them for you on the cross. And friend, I just, I plead with you, don't, don't delay. Don't wait another day. Today is the salvation of the Lord. And eternity with him is yours for the taking. Maybe you find yourself here today, maybe apathetic towards the grace of God, that it's becomes grown stale in your heart. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to reflect on the love of God for you this morning. Take time to repent, even search your heart. Why, why, why do I feel this way? Pray, as David prayed, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. And one of the ways that I've helped me when I've been stale or I feel in... Uh, uh, again, lost you know, the vision of God's grace is moving towards people you know, or moving towards messy situations. Because when you move towards messy situations with, with God's grace in mind, you get to see the transformation happen. And when you get to, you get to talk to somebody who's struggling in sin or struggling with that, and you, and you say, Lord, you prepared good works for me to do. I'm going to move towards them. And when you see change happen, when you see somebody put off sin and put on Christ, there's like, this is a miracle happening. This isn't me. This is something. That, and to be a part of that and to see that in front of your face like, as a pastor, I get to see that all the time. So I just encourage you, like, who, who in your life, who's somebody that's, that's hurting? It's like, I, I want to see a miracle happen. I want to be a part of it. I want to see it. I want to have front row view to see God's grace work in their lives. And church, for all of us, we have a really great opportunity over the next few years to make God's grace known in this community. Right it, at the end of spring, we'll be known as College Park, uh, not Castleton Community Church. <laughs> Hopefully, God, goodness gracious. And I just I, I ask ourselves, okay, in ten years, what are those people across the street? What are they gonna when they when, we, when they see that sign, when they hear the name Castleton Community Church? What what are they gonna think about? When you you know wear a new T-shirt, when you're out there and you're talking, it's like yeah, I go here. What what are they gonna think? Are they going to say I, I've just encountered? a glimpse of God's grace by the interaction I've had with him. And it, can, it doesn't happen in a day. It happens day after day, showing our neighbors, showing our spouses, showing our families what it looks like to live in the grace of God, knowing that his grace is abundant and he's rich in mercy. Church, your sins are worse than you realize, but church, God's love and mercy is more than you can imagine. And Christ's amazing grace will surely lead us home. Let's pray. Father, we confess that so often we forget your gospel of grace. We often think that you owe us grace, and we forget that we are meant to show your grace to others. Father, help us walk in obedience towards you, even this morning that those around us might see your grace and how we love one another, how we forgive one another, and how we pursue one another with your love. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who has never experienced your great love in Christ Jesus, I ask that you would break the chains of sin and death in their hearts and that today would be the day 
that they put your faith in, their faith in you and you bring salvation to their hearts, that you would make their dead hearts alive. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this gospel of grace and may we never forget it. In your son, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.